here's the thing. When, when someone says, oh, I wonder if I have a problem with gluten and they go to their doc and say, um, can you test me for gluten sensitivity? Well, most docs uh, will run a celiac panel on you. And then it comes back negative because let's be honest, only, you know, one to 3% of the population has celiac disease. And then they say, you don't have a problem with wheat. Well, that's a lack of understanding of the testing because a celiac panel is not testing for wheat and gluten sensitivity. It's testing for celiac disease, very different Mm -hmm. process. Hello and welcome to the Health Detective Podcast by Functional Diagnostic Nutrition. We bring you interviews from people who have conquered the trickiest of health challenges using the Functional Diagnostic Nutrition philosophy and similar healing modalities. You're going to hear from experts who have been through the ringer with their health issues and yet managed to come out on the other side. If you're interested in natural healing and or functional medicine, congrats, you are in the right place. You can always visit us at functionaldiagnosticnutrition.com. But for now, here is today's episode. All right. Hello there, Whitney. Welcome back to the Health Detective Podcast. How are you? I'm great, Evan. Thanks. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, so if you guys are signed up for our FDN Insider Training, uh, that's fdntraining.com slash insider, you would have heard Whitney recently because we did a bunch of cool 20-minute interviews around the Christmas time, uh, that part of the year. And you can still go listen to those now if you're listening to this at any point in your year. And it's just really intensives on very specific topics. So one of the things that we teased at that time was the idea of Whitney coming back on this podcast to share her expertise with a lot of the stuff that she knows, not only about gluten, we kind of covered that before, but specifically we're going to be covering Uh, some differences between food sensitivity tests today and then the Zoomers. And I'm always very transparent with the audience where I'm at knowledge-wise. I I, I do a lot of other things outside of FDN, right? Like Zoomers are are pretty new to me. I'm excited about learning it. So I like to come in with that healthy level of ignorance, Um, just ignorant enough that it's actually new information to me, but also not so ignorant that I can't ask and uh, hopefully can ask intelligent questions to you today. Uh, but with that said, if you guys want to hear Whitney's original story, she was literally the second person ever on this podcast out of like 200 something episodes now. So go way back. You'll hear my crappy microphone at the time. There's no video. It's it's a different setup, but uh, it's still cool. She has a powerful story. And what you actually really embody quite well, Whitney, a, a few things, but one of those that I liked is your part in your story. I remember this from all the way back then where you kind of had this conversation with your family about like, it's almost me or the gluten, right? Because it's not that people don't love us, but sometimes they don't get how serious this is for us as the people actually suffering with these conditions. And so if we can show them evidence and at a certain point we're not changing, it's like, we need to decide what we like more gluten or, you know, our own family members. And when it's put that way, um, that's powerful. And I, I think, you know, every now and then uh, you might lose like a friendship or two that way, but we can't yep. sacrifice our own health uh, for the people around us always. Um, we can invite them into this journey and hopefully get them healthier with us. But yeah, we shouldn't be sacrificing ourselves with that. It's not fun if you've had these diseases and Whitney's been through a lot. So go check that out. Uh, but today, you know, she's on the other side doing well, and we're here to talk about the expertise. So before we share the lab results, so if you are listening, we'll have this on YouTube as always, when we do a uh, lab test, we always screen share it, but we will try to do our best today to make it something that you could enjoy on audio as well. Of course, it's always going to be better on video looking at it. Sure. But Whitney, let's um start with the differences between all these food sensitivity 
sensitivity tests out there. Um, it can be overwhelming. You know, there's people that go to the allergist, then there's the sensitivity tests. I see them at CVS and Rite Aid now. You can buy them off the shelf. Um, we use the MRT a lot in the course. So uh, I don't even know where to start with this. I'll, I'll kind of throw that at you because it's a really complicated question. <laughs> it is. It's complicated. And unfortunately, um, it's one of the tests out there. You and I were just talking about this where the general public feels like, oh, this is simple. Right. It's just like, am I sensitive or not? Right. Um, so first off, allergy testing and sensitivity testing are totally different. Um, you and I don't do allergy testing as, mm -hmm. as a rule. I mean, usually if you have a legit allergy, you know it. It's an anaphylactic sort of thing, you know, massive five alarm fire. That's more the scope of your conventional medicine, your allergist, your immunologist, that kind of stuff. Uh, food sensitivity is different in that um, symptoms can show up one day later, three days later, four days later, symptoms may not show up at all. In fact, the only symptom you might have from a food sensitivity is your immune system um, reacting and potentially you being in those preliminary stages of developing an autoimmune disease. So a lot of people, particularly like with gluten sensitivity and there's some, there's some other uh, like dairy, don't even know they're sensitive until they get a diagnosis. And then they come see someone like you and me and they go, how did this happen? And we start doing the testing. It's like, oh, well, you know, you, you have gluten sensitivity, corn, dairy. And they're like, well, I feel fine when I eat those things. Right. How many times have you heard that? Right. I don't have symptoms. <laughs> yeah. So um, so that's one thing. So testing is is critical to correlate food sensitivity testing along with symptomology critical, right? You need both, both sides of the picture. Um, but then when we're talking about sensitivity testing, the big difference is whole food antigen or peptide antigens. Okay. So the way I explain it to my clients is most testing out there, they're using whole foods. So think of it like you have a puzzle and it's all put together. You can see the picture. Okay. So let's say you put a puzzle together. It's just a big old picture of a kernel of corn. Okay. That's the whole food antigen, but it's made up of lots of little pieces that fit together to make that whole food, right? So the test is using the whole food antigen and that antigen takes a very specific antibody response and they hook together. That's the antibody is the way your immune system attacks that antigen, right? They hook together in a lock and key formation, right? Well, if you take that whole food and you break it apart, now you just have a box full of puzzle pieces. Each individual piece is a peptide, right? It's a peptide of that whole food. Each peptide takes a unique antibody in a lock and key situation totally different than the whole food. So the big takeaway from that is that you can test negative to a whole food, meaning it's safe for you to eat, right? But when we break up the whole food into all those puzzle pieces, you can test positive to a lot of the puzzle pieces. And when you're sensitive to any of those puzzle pieces, you are sensitive to that food. Okay. So my problem with more of the traditional testing being like the only thing that some practitioners are using is that 
there's such a vulnerability to false negatives. So, and, and I see this all the time with wheat and corn and dairy and other grains and legumes and nuts that people are testing negative to these things on a whole food test, but they're actually very sensitive when we do the peptide-based testing. Wow. Uh, so first of all, I'm excited because I, when I went through the course like six years ago, Whitney, she was already part of FDN, but um, I don't even, were the Zoomers around six years ago, first of all? It's a good question. Um, maybe just coming on the scene, actually. Certainly they weren't being used in, in this way where it's like now we're, we're having conversations about this regularly. Right, right. Yeah. Okay. Um, so one of the things is now in the course, I actually just found this out because of the people in my life that are going through FDN. So you guys can actually hear from Whitney directly in the FDN course, uh, really mm -hmm. breaking this stuff down in depth. Uh, but my point is I... I, again, I admit I'm still learning plenty of this and I love how our clinical advisors, first of all, have the best analogies like you and I, I love all of them, but you and Ryan in particular, I got to say, you guys make these really cool pictures in people's heads of, and I'm thinking about this puzzle now and I'm like, okay, so just to be clear and uh, forgive me if I miss something, you are suggesting that right, I have this entire pop, uh, puzzle made up of these peptide pieces more or less, and I could not react to the whole puzzle, but in theory, I can react to a puzzle piece. And yes. that food test that was looking at the whole puzzle would not catch that. Yes. And, and wow. a lot of people go, how is that possible? Well, because if you think about it, your digestion breaks down your food, right? Mm -hmm. And then unless that food is broken down really well, it's not assimilated. The nutrients don't get assimilated and the proteins into the bloodstream because they're too big, right? But if your gut is leaky then larger proteins that are partially digested get through and they don't belong there, then your immune system sees them and goes, whoa, wait a minute. Hmm. So the chances of a peptide getting through a smaller puzzle piece, right? Rather than the whole puzzle itself, mm -hmm. right? Much, much more likely your immune system is going to come into contact with those puzzle pieces than the whole thing put together. So when, when I see like a traditional test, um, and usually this is in my clinical advising stuff and I'm looking at other people's clients and I, I see a whole food antigen based test and, and the client is super reactive. Well, I know right off the gate, right out of the gate, their digestion probably sucks and mm -hmm. they've got a leaky gut. Okay, okay, that's that's primarily what that means. It doesn't mean that all the foods they're reacting to are bad for them. And in fact, most of them, they will be able to reintroduce and safely eat again. What it means is that their gut is leaky and their digestion is poor. And so we really need to focus on that and clean it up so these foods can be safe again. This, this is very interesting because I think this connects uh, a huge a huge disconnect that I hear a lot of the time um, in this functional community because we have some people completely dismissing the food sensitivity testing. Uh, it doesn't sure. matter at all. And it's because technically, you know, you can heal a lot of these things. Yeah. Um, now, at the same time, we'll get people like Reed, founder of FDN, you know, adamant about this. And I think this is the connection. It, it really comes down to this. Does it mean that these food sensitivity tests are not useful? No, it doesn't. But he would never advocate for running it by itself. He does not say that. He says he no. wants you to do it with all these other tests. So I think mm -hmm. that's where people miss it. Like, 
yes, you actually might be correct that running this as a standalone um, sometimes might not be the best option, especially if you're not. I was telling Whitney, I'm actually, this is something I use as a standalone with the transparency to the client that the only reason I'm doing this with you is because one, you're telling me you truly cannot afford other labs right now. And right. two, you kind of need a little extra belief. So if yeah. you know that there's going to be more work and this is going to help you tip to the other side, I'm all for that. But I never ever sell it in the sense that, and, and here's the thing, it's like a one-off consult for me. It's not like I'm getting rich off doing this. I don't right. even want to do this. I want to do the bigger stuff with them. So um, we kind of, we just have to be clear on that and then realize in the FDN system, this was always intended, like the MRT thing that we teach, yes. to be used in conjunction with all these other labs so that, yes, you don't have to be sensitive or reactive to these things forever. There, there's some disclaimers on it, right? Depending on how you're reacting to things like, sure. you know, gluten. Yeah, of course, that yeah. might be the one where this is an Gluten's issue. forever. But, <laughs> right, right. Let's take, yeah. I mean, something random here like... Uh, uh, chicken for some people. Sure. We even teach in the course, you know, if it's yellow on the MRT, maybe after 60 days, we can be reintroducing it. And if it's red, you know, you're going to want to look at like 90 plus. But the obvious question then to someone who hasn't even been involved in the space, hasn't done the course is, well, why would you be able to reintroduce something that you're mm -hmm. sensitive to? And it's because of what you just talked about. This isn't necessarily a permanent thing. It's an insight into where right. this person's at. Yes, you can make them feel a lot better pretty quickly by yeah. removing those foods. But, and correct me if I'm wrong here, if you do not address anything else and we, let's say you're sensitive to chicken, you got a red, you remove it for 90 days and then you know put it in very likely because of the leaky gut and all these other problems mm -hmm. that you have, aren't you just going to develop sensitivities like uh, most likely to other foods that you didn't really have an issue with before? Cause now you're prioritizing them in the diet. So you kind of lead to the same issue. Well, yeah, particularly if, if you're consuming foods and, and you're um, participating in certain lifestyle habits that make your gut leaky again. Right. I mean, that's the right, thing. Like you're it's doing like, nothing else. You're doing yeah, nothing yeah, yeah. else except the sensitivity stuff. Right, 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 right. So, so, um, you know, people say, okay, well, I'm going to heal and seal my gut and then everything's going to be okay. Well, not really, because you have to maintain <laughs> a healthy gut in order, mm -hmm. right? Because our modern world could just causes leaky gut. I mean, across the board, it does, right? In yeah. our, our, our lifestyle. Um, but yeah, with, with sensitivity to, What's really important, I think, is that um, here's another analogy for you. Let's Please. say you've got a really bad sunburn. Okay. Well, when you have a bad sunburn, anything that touches your skin is, it's like on fire, right? I mean, everything, you're super, super hypersensitive. Nothing can touch you. Once that sunburn heals, you're fine. Okay. Well, having a leaky gut and gut inflammation and all, all of the disruption in the gut that creates this hostile environment that we really can't feel. It's like having a sunburn on the inside. So now you have all these things that are coming through the gut that if you weren't sunburned on the inside, right, they wouldn't bother your immune system. They wouldn't bother your gut that everything would be okay. So intolerance or sensitivity is often a reflection of the level of damage that's there, right? And if we tone down that damage and we heal it, then the immune system goes back to having that greater tolerance, right? And it can accept more things. So it's okay. always a moving target. Got it. The one other, actually, you brought up intolerance. So I want to bring this up before mm -hmm. we get to this actual lab result, because I, 
it, it is worth mentioning, especially if someone you'll never know. Someone clicks on us for the first time and they maybe like this title because they saw something about gluten. So they're like, all right, I don't even know these guys, but I'm clicking on this. Uh, you, This is one thing that I find all the time when I'm talking to people that they get confused about. You brought up this idea that people consume a food, they don't feel a symptom from it. And so they think they're not sensitive. Right. I find a lot of times, because if you had a headache, that might be a little more they might be able to make that connection. I find that some people find digestive distress to be a hundred percent equatable with the word sensitivity. And yes. to the lay person that's not trained in this, I mean, fair enough. I, I totally understand that logic. But really, a lot of the times, what you're looking at, guys, that that's an intolerance. That's not necessarily a sensitivity. Right. The, the easy example that I always I try to use now, I didn't think of it originally, but I'm like, well, duh, a lactose intolerance. Just sure. because you have a lactose intolerance, you know, a lot of those people take the lactase enzyme, mm-hmm. and now their stomach troubles go away. Well, just because you had the gassiness or you know you had to go to the bathroom right afterwards, that does not necessarily imply that you had some type of immune response. So if we're getting right. technical on the terms, intolerance, you could have a sensitivity as well, but it does not mean an immune response. When we're talking about right. an allergy, we're talking about a specific immune response that yes. you brought up the anaphylaxis. These are your IgE responses. So anytime you're seeing a kid at the peanut table at, at school, that was someone with a legitimate IgE response that could potentially hospitalize them. I mean, worst case, it, it could actually uh, cause someone to pass away depending on how severe it is. Yes. Sensitivity, um, and I don't know if you define this differently, I typically look at it as an immune response that is not an allergy. Is that, is that fair to say, or is that too broad? No, I would say that's, that's fair. Yes. It's, okay. it's an immune response exclusive of IgE. Correct. Okay. Got yes. It. Cool. Yeah. it could be so, IgG, IgA. It could be some sort of mediated response that's more nonspecific, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, and it is broad. So one of the things we're doing today is kind of getting a little closer to, uh, you know, wheat itself, but we're looking yeah. at a lot of the different puzzle pieces, I think would be a good way to yes. say it. So the test that we're using today, wheat zoomer, uh, before I even pull that up on the screen share, what is it that we're looking at? Because from my understanding, knowing your analogy now, I think we're looking at multiple puzzle pieces, but we're also looking at different ways that the body could respond to the puzzle pieces. Is that correct? Yeah, we're looking at the puzzle pieces. We're also looking at, um, uh, reparative enzymes, um, and then uh, the celiac panels are really more focused on identifying a certain level of damage in the gut that, mm-hmm. that okay. is, is, you know, common in people with celiac disease. So here's the thing. When, when someone says, oh, I wonder if I have a problem with gluten and they go to their doc and say, um, can you test me for gluten sensitivity? Well, most docs, uh, we'll run a celiac panel on you. And then it comes back negative because let's be honest, only, you know, one to 3% of the population has celiac disease. And then they say, you don't have a problem with wheat. Well, that's a lack of understanding of the testing because a celiac panel is not testing for wheat and gluten sensitivity. It's testing for celiac disease, very different Mm -hmm. process. So you can test negative to celiac and still be wicked gluten sensitive. Okay. So that's one thing. Um, the other thing is they might send you and to like an allergist. Well, that's an IgE response. So if you come back in the green on wheat and gluten and you get told, oh, no, you're, you're fine there. Well, that just means you're not going to have an anaphylactic response, but that doesn't mean you're not sensitive. So, you know, there's, there is, uh, you got to make sure you're getting the right test, right? So <laughs> yeah. uh, the wheat zoomer is definitely the right test. It screens for celiac disease. It also um, gives us an IgE response to wheat, and it looks at all those puzzle pieces. 
It also assesses our gut lining. So it really is like the biggest bang for your buck. Sweet. Well, I'm excited. We definitely built the suspense for this one. We'll finally (laughs) share the screen for you uh, fine people here. Okay. Um, Here we go. So I'm also, if you're one of our YouTube friends, I'm going to try to keep the screen as steady as possible until we shift because I love Riverside. We love you guys. You're a great program, but the screen share thing has been quite an issue where sometimes my screen share just won't pop up and then I got to go back and record it afterwards. And my wonderful girlfriend who has done video editing, she actually edits it in for us. So hopefully we're not dealing with that this time. Um, I will actually zoom in on this for you a little bit too. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, that's pretty zoomed in, but yeah. you just tell me when to scroll. We'll start up here. Yeah, go up just a uh, little bit. Yeah. So so the first thing you see is you get these scores, right? We have a wheat (laughs) score and we have intestinal permeability score. And you can see the wheat score is off the chart. Now, (laughs) this is kind of like getting a final exam grade, you know, and you think, okay, well, why did I get a D? Well, it's because, you know, essay questions are worth more than your multiple choice and you really screwed up on the essay, right? I mean, so I don't know uh, what their weighted algorithm is behind the score, but there are different reactions that are more clinically significant and serious, right? So depending on what you've got going on, that's going to impact your score. Same with the intestinal permeability score. But this is a snapshot that makes you go, oh, I got a problem, right? Okay. Okay. Yeah. So regardless of if I knew nothing else about the test, I can look at this and already tell the person, okay, wow, this is, yeah, this is not going well for you. And you're probably, yeah, you're dealing with some stuff here. Yeah. You're dealing with some stuff. Yeah. So then we have the positive, moderate reactions. This is the summary shows us all of the puzzle pieces we reacted to, all the ones we were negative to. And then did we have an IgA reaction or an IgG? IgA reactions are like your first responders. You get in a wreck on the highway. That's the EMT that comes. Boom. That's your IgA. Um, Then they hand you off to the hospital folks and they're your long-term care. You get admitted. They they hang out with you until you're better, right? So IgA is quick on the scene, quick off the scene. IgG hangs out a long time, up to six months. So when we have IgA reactions, we know okay, this person was exposed to these puzzle pieces within the, you know, six to 12 days prior to the blood draw. Otherwise, those IgA antibodies would be gone. Hmm. Okay. With the IgG reactions, we know, wow, okay, they works over the past four to six months. These are all the puzzle pieces they were exposed to. So so we can see both elements. And when we have both elements, we can tell ourselves, tell tell ourselves a story. So if I was talking to this client, I would say, okay, in the two weeks before the test, did you go out to dinner or did you eat inside your home the whole time? Right. Okay. Well, I, I never go out to dinner. You know, I go out like maybe once a month. I was super, super careful because I knew I was going to take this test. So man, I was really on top of my game. Okay. Well, you still got exposed. So it must be something in your house that you don't, that you're not aware of. Right. So it's that kind of investigative process. You still have to kind of like ask yourself or ask your client the questions so you can develop the most appropriate story. It's like solving a mystery, right? Yeah. Do you remember with this particular client? I mean, this is, again, I've never ran one of these, but it seems like it's kind of lit up. Was this someone who was actively eating wheat or do they think that they were off of it? They were gluten-free. Wow. And (laughs) yeah, yeah. And that's another thing. No one's as gluten-free as they think they are. They didn't live in a gluten-free house. Um, And they actually uh, 
own or, or a partial owner of a restaurant uh, that is predominantly a gluten-free restaurant, right? Super, super organic, grass-fed, all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they ate at this restaurant, you know, frequently, right? Their restaurant where they controlled everything. So that was kind of where they dined out. Um, also, this client um, had a pretty stressful job and occasionally would go out for lunch with colleagues. So, mm-hmm. right. So you've yeah. got all these possible exposures, dining out and, you know, gluten is still walking through your front door, even though you might be knowingly avoiding it, you know, not eating it yourself, but it's still in your kitchen and you're getting these micro exposures. Yeah. Uh, Whitney, I've been, I didn't, hopefully, do you do the medical director program for these? Or are you one of the people that does the consults for this? Oh Yeah. Oh, awesome. All right. Well, I'll give you a test soon, probably, because I, I've been telling my girlfriend I want to run one of these. We I don't eat out, but we do yeah. have this one natural food market and the the owner, she's gluten sensitive or gluten sensitive, excuse me. And I know that she's a wonderful woman in case she ever listens to this, but I, I, she doesn't understand this as deeply as we do as FDNs. And so it's the one deli that I gave some, you know, I've attempted at it with and I've eaten there pretty frequently. That place I seem to do okay at, but we also know that we can't base this just off symptoms. Right. I would be surprised if I ate there as frequently as I do and did not have symptoms. Uh, but I want to kind of check this. And so I'm going to do a thing where it's just like, you know, maybe every other day for a week or two, um, I try it out. You know what I mean? When they're making yeah. different batches of the stuff, give them a few chances and see what happens. I don't want to believe that I, I can't do that. But I also know for me and my family's history, the last thing I want is having a wheat sensitive or sorry, I'm having a reaction actively happening that I don't even realize because I know what the next step will be for me then. So this can be really good to kind of figure out like if what you're doing is working in your life, even if you think you're gluten sensitive. So yeah, absolutely. I, so just to be clear on audio, we already went over the positive and moderate section for this client. Now, uh, the next one that we're looking at together is the negative section. And there's quite a lot going on here. Some big science words. Yeah. Yeah. Um, usually you're going to see the, the celiac panels are negative and that's that you see celiac on the top and then the TTG DGP complex panel. Those are the two that are celiac specific and those are negative. Um, and then, you know, the, of the intestinal permeate, permeability panel, they were negative to anti-LPS, right? And that's the endotoxins from gram-negative bacteria. And then we could see, okay, yeah, their transcontaminase panel three and six were negative. These are reparative enzymes that are specific for the brain and the skin. Um, So if they're positive, uh, they can be red flags for autoimmune disease progression in both of those locations. And then we have, you know, a couple of gluten peptides that this person was negative to and a wheat peptide that the person was Mm -hmm. negative to. Cool. And um, just to be clear with the celiac thing, because I know it's kind of hard to test. Mm -hmm. I've always been told it's hard to test for that, especially if we're not doing an endoscopy. Um, Do you, how much do you trust this on the celiac side? Like, I don't know if there is an accurate percentage, but like, I'm assuming this cannot be a hundred percent accurate to diagnose or exclude celiac. Well, it's, it's as accurate as, a blood test from your gastroenterologist. Okay. Yeah. Okay. It's basically the same blood test. Um, and there's, there's criteria. You, you have to have antibodies um, mm-hmm. and to either transcontaminase 2 or deaminated gliadin or endomysial or, uh, and you have to have a genetic risk factor and then you have to have um, some sort of positive biopsy and in, in the endoscopy. 
not all practitioners, uh, GI docs will make you tick all those boxes. It just depends. But uh, usually if you, if you ask a doctor, I want to be screened for celiac disease, they're going to start with a blood test. They're not going to go straight right. to the endoscopy because right. that's more expensive and that's invasive. Right. Yeah. Most people don't want to do that. It sucks. I right. have to do one myself. It's not fun. Like I right. wouldn't sign up for that. <laughs> so they're going to run a blood test. Hopefully they include genetics and then they're going to see. And if you don't have the genes and you don't have elevated antibodies, they're going to say, no, no reason for the upper GI because we already know you're negative. We've ruled it out. Got it. Okay. Got it. All right. Yeah. And then um, in the next section here, we just have uh, the wheat allergy panel. Yeah. So they, they do test for IgE and it's clear that this is, it looks like this is not an allergy for this right. person. It's a sensitivity. Right, right. Okay, cool. Um, all right. As we go down here, we see that they also test for zonulin and that actually looks Looks decent. normal. Um, okay. Zonulin uh, is an enzyme that correlates with leaky gut when it's elevated, but it changes very quickly in the gut. So zonulin can be normal even in the presence of a leaky gut. That's why we look at antibodies to zonulin because they hang out for so long in the bloodstream, right? Right. I also, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I, especially in today's world, unless you're like literally doing a lot of the stuff that FDNs are doing, I mean, mm -hmm. and over a period of time, I'm not saying zonulin is not an important marker. You know, again, my girlfriend and uh, friend, they just got their R&Rs done recently. Uh, you know, he had a high zonulin, she had a low one or a, in range one. And I'm kind of just like, Okay, if we're defining leaky gut by, you know, your cells not being like they're not as tight as they should be, I sure. feel like everyone is subjected to this in some way. I mean, yeah, you might have such a leaky gut that it's like, wow, through the roof, you could see it on a test. But I mean, how do you how do you approach that just on a side note? Because like I kind of look at it as I already make the assumption that sure. if this person is not in the functional health space and they're living a normal um we're you know primarily based in America, although we do have listeners in uh pretty much all over the world at this point now. A any civilized country in this world, it almost seems like I don't know how you wouldn't have a leaky gut. Is that ignorant of me to assume or do you kind no, of go with that assumption as well? I mean, I I assume that too. You know, in fact, you could just like throw a dart and anyone you hit's got a leaky gut. I mean, chances <laughs> yeah. are, right? Um, it's kind of what I, yeah. Yeah, but then let's, let's remember this is blood, right? So we're not mm -hmm. looking at zonulin in the stool. We're looking for okay. it in the blood. And, you know, different mediums have different, accuracy points and different blind spots. So when zonulin is elevated in the blood, then yeah, okay, that's another huge red flag that yeah, at the time of taking this test, this person had some major exposure that increased their zonulin um, mm. and most likely gluten or gram negative bacteria, something like that. Uh, but a normal level doesn't really, it's a non-clue in my book, total non-clue. Okay. Good. okay. As we scroll on down here, that one, just so you guys on audio know that zonulin thing was kind of hanging out by itself. Sure. Um, and now we go into, we have a few things here. The first one is celiac. Yeah. It's kind of a whole yeah. celiac thing. For the by first itself. two are celiac. So okay. uh, the, the first one that says celiac on top of it, that's the, the more traditional celiac panel, much like the blood mm -hmm. test you're going to get from your GI doc. And, you know, this is going to be negative. 97 to 98% of the time when we run wheat zoomers because celiac disease is not as prevalent as gluten sensitivity or non-celiac gluten sensitivity. So yeah, this is negative. Transglutaminase 2 is a reparative enzyme. Um, it's everywhere really, uh, but it, it's highly concentrated 
um, in the gut and the small intestine. So when we have elevated antibodies to transcontaminase 2, that's indicative of a lot of damage at the locale of, you know, the gut lining, right? Mm -hmm. So this is this blows people's minds, but like I have celiac disease. And when I ran my first wheat zoomer, both of my celiac panels were negative because I've been gluten-free for a long time. I'm appropriately managing my celiac disease, but I still had antibodies to a variety of different gluten and wheat peptides because I was getting these infrequent exposures, but at a low enough and infrequent enough rate that it wasn't triggering the gut damage associated with the celiac disease. So my celiac panel continues to be negative. So that's great news for me. It means I'm successful at controlling my celiac disease, but I wasn't successful at keeping gluten completely out of my life. Wow. Okay? And you are, this is guys, if you're just meeting Whitney, this is, that's actually surprising to even me. Yeah. So, um, and I live in a gluten-free trying. house. Yeah. You are trying. That's the point. Yeah. <laughs> I'm hardcore, like yeah. wicked hardcore. So um, the second panel is unique to Vibrant. They have developed this panel. Uh, this is a fusion peptide panel. And what it is designed to do is identify that kind of gut damage associated with celiac disease at an earlier standpoint, right? So, so in other words, if you're five to seven years away from full-blown celiac disease, in theory, this panel can catch you, right? So if I see a negative celiac panel, but the complex, the fusion peptide panel is positive, I can say, hey, you know, I can't tell you, you you're definitely going to get celiac disease, but I can tell you there's a high likelihood that you're walking down that path and you're headed in that direction. So, but if you go to your gastro and say, I want to get screened for celiac disease, you're going to be negative because I've got a negative celiac panel right here. Right. Okay. So okay. this is a predictive celiac panel, the second one. Yeah. The first time I got introduced to that idea of predictive autoimmunity yeah. was uh, the Dr. Tom O'Brien's book, um, mm -hmm. The Autoimmune Fix. And I remembered him talking about they took the blood from military people and they could like predict with 93% accuracy or something getting lupus like seven years later. Yeah. I was like, what? What? Yeah. That, that's, I mean, that's incredible stuff. So, uh, it, you know, it sucks because I feel like we're in one of the biggest or bigger health crises that we'll ever have. But the the good side of this, just like the mental health thing with the pandemic, is there's so much awareness now coming around these things that I feel like, all right, wow, we are sunk down, we're low. But as the awareness increases, you know, we'll just have better and better steps. Technology is getting better and better. And technology sometimes has been to our detriment, ironically, sure. with our health. But I think, my gosh, when we're talking about a predictive autoimmunity thing. I'm like, the idea that I could predict with 93% accuracy, which is only going to get better over time. Sure. If you are going to have lupus in seven years, I mean, that's not even that big of a deal. That's like, hey, still go enjoy your weekend, enjoy the birthday. And you know what? The next Christmas too. That's fine. Have a great time. But yeah. we need to get some work done pretty soon here so that you don't get this eventually, right? That's, that's right. That's not even like, yeah. That's right. Um, and not only that, but <laughs> hey, you might you might be on the path to have lupus seven years from now, but we can get you on a completely different path in Bingo. nine to 12 months. How How mm -hmm. does that sound? Yeah, right? before the real pain comes here, where you start right. feeling this, and right, people right, don't right. have to go through what we went through. That's amazing. <laughs> it's like having a crystal ball. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right, 
Cool. The next section here is the intestinal permeability panel. And this is where uh, first one of these little subsections that we're starting to see some red high risk. Yeah. Yeah. So you see the zonulin repeated there again, right? And it's normal. But then you see the anti-zonulin, which is high and it's the IgG. And that's because, like I said, IgG hangs out for up to six months in the bloodstream. That's why it's really important to look at IgG because we're more likely to catch those things, right? So, um, so that's really high, 2.06. So yeah, so zonulin, anti-zonulin indicates that there's some damage at those tight junctions, those little gateways between the cells that line our small intestine. Um, so, you know, that's, that's usually uh, due to gram-negative bacteria in the gut um, or gluten. Okay. And then we have anti-actin. Now, actin is, I think of it as um, kind of an architectural framework for the cells, right? It provides integrity to all the cells that that line the gut. And it also supports those tight junctions. It it provides a little um, integrity to the tight junction resiliency. So when someone has antibodies to actin, that means there's some there's some immune system damage going on at the level of the cell. Mm. That often means that it could indicate an autoimmune process for sure. Um, but basically, in our speak, we would say this person has paracellular transcellular leakage, leakage around the cells and through the cells, right? Do you want to go to the next thing? Sure. Cool. All right. Then we have transglutaminase panel, and that all looks pretty good here. Yeah. So just like transglutaminase 2 is what we look at for um, celiac to identify celiac damage, transglutaminase 3 is uh, more predominant in the skin. It's a reparative enzyme for the skin. Transglutaminase 6 is is more uh, dominant in the brain. So if we have antibodies to either of those enzymes, then we're thinking about, okay, that's a little red flag for potential autoimmune progression in those locations. We need to look deeper. So if this was positive, like let's say uh, transcontaminase 6 antibodies were elevated, I'd want to see a neural zoomer on this person, or I'd want to see a Cyrex uh, array 5, or I forget what their, I think array 10 or 12 might be their brain one. But that's where we're looking at all the puzzle pieces of the brain, right? To see, okay. are you making antibodies to your own tissue? And we can predict what potential risk factors you might have for neurological autoimmunity. Uh, psoriasis might be showing up um, with transcontaminase 3 or, or other skin autoimmune issues. You, you just beat me too. That was my question. I'm like, because you said that before and then yeah. I, I kind of, we kept going through the other things. I was thinking about this. I'm like, okay, vitiligo, psoriasis, yeah. is this correlated with these types of things? And that would be, now, is it also things, because for me, I mean, I've always had a, I mean, thankfully it got a lot better, but you know, cystic acne, my mom had a history of that, but we also had these kind of histories of autoimmunity as well. Would something like this correlate with acne, even though acne is not in and of itself an autoimmune thing, or would it only be the autoimmune diseases? You know, that's, that's a good question. I, I don't know the answer to that. Um, that's a really okay. great question. I bet you Vibrant would have some research on that. Uh, but, you know, I have to say, because um, I have psoriasis too. I mean, I'm, I'm an mm-hmm. autoimmune collector. You know, I'm, I've got four <laughs> autoimmune diagnoses. They're all in remission. But um, I come back negative on transcontaminase 3. And, and I think it's because my psoriasis has always been very, very mild, you know, a very small percentage of my skin. 
Um, and I live the lifestyle that I live. So, you know, if, if I was seeing someone who had major uncontrolled psoriasis, where they would call it more moderate to severe, then I would expect it to correlate, but it doesn't always correlate. It depends on the person and their lifestyle. Cool. All right. I'm going down to, Oh, Whoa, a lot of reds and yellows. Yeah, over here. man. Um, yeah, we got the wheat germ panel followed by the gliadin panel. So we'll start with uh, the wheat germ panel. What are we looking at here? Yeah. So wheat germ is not gluten, right? It is the lectin of wheat. It is the big bad of all the plant lectins. Um, there is There are only two tissues in the body that wheat germ cannot attach to. Hmm. So just think about that. Okay. Wheat germ damages the gut. It causes leaky gut. It gets through the gut lining, infiltrates the bloodstream, and now it's on a super high highway to anywhere it wants to go. It goes to the thyroid. It goes to the breast. It goes to the pancreas. It goes... It can go to all organs and tissues except two. Once it attaches, then the immune system sees it and goes, whoa, 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 you don't belong there. And it goes after the wheat germ and starts to try and eliminate it. And during that process, some of the surrounding human tissue can be destroyed. And that's what we call autoimmune disease by collateral damage. Got it. And wow. lectins, what, what are the two tissues? Oh, sorry, sorry. I oh, um, I want to say the eye, something in the eye, and I can't remember the other one. No worries. I'm just like, oh, it's cliffhanger. Come on, yeah, so, I know, uh, right? something it's to cliffhanger. look. Yeah, um, yeah, that's why we have Google, guys. But uh, yeah, yeah. All right, cool. No, no worries. No worries. Exactly. <laughs> um, but the thing about lectins is that they're just so destructive in and of themselves, right? Um, they can bind to sugar. They follow sugar wherever sugar goes. So sugar goes into your muscles, into your brain. It goes, it goes everywhere, right? Um, th so they contribute to muscle wasting. They break down the blood-brain barrier. They contribute to autoimmunity systemically everywhere in the body. Um, they also can interrupt with hormone signaling and tell the body to store fat rather than burn it. I mean, there's a reason we feed our livestock grains, right? High, high lectin content. Boy, makes you fat. So, um, so yeah, wheat germ, even without this reaction, you know, if you're not sensitive to wheat germ, it's still not good for you. It's not good for anybody. Okay. But for this person, this makes me very concerned because I think, okay, and this is someone with Hashimoto's. It's like, well, of course, right? So I would expect to see elevated thyroid antibodies on a comprehensive thyroid panel in someone with Hashimoto's when they're reacting like this to wheat germ, because I know their Hashimoto's isn't under control, right? And if they've got Hashimoto's and they're female, most likely they've got other autoimmune diseases on the way. So this is a high concern. I'd also want to see a neural zoomer because uh, wheat germ and gluten in general is just so problematic for um, neurological disease that it's better to be safe than sorry. Okay. All right. As we move on down to uh, the gliadin panel, we see there's a lot going on here. Uh, many things to look at, but also yeah. many things that this person was reacting to. Yeah. So gluten is a big clunky protein 
and it breaks up into gliadin peptides and glutenin peptides. So we're looking at the gliadin panel. So these are those gliadin puzzle pieces. Uh, we have alpha, alpha, beta, gamma, and omega. So the alpha gliadin is more, tends to be more reactive in people with celiac disease. So I'm, I'm going to have a far greater potential to react to alpha than any of the other gliadins because I have celiac disease. But when I see that with someone with Hashimoto's, I'm like, whoa, you might have celiac disease. It just hasn't been triggered. You just don't have enough of the gut damage. So I'd want to see genetics on this person. I just want to see to make sure what their risk factor is. Um, alpha beta isn't doesn't correlate to anything specifically, but the gamma and the omega gliadins, uh, when, when someone's reactive to those, that can point to an increased risk of neurological autoimmunity, dementia, Alzheimer's, those kinds of things. Um, gluten impacts the brain more than it does the gut. So, you know, think about that, right? If you've got anxiety, depression, ADD, ADHD, any sort of mood disorder, um, you know, brain fog. I mean, there's just, the, the list is endless. Um, there's a, there's a high correlation with gluten sensitivity and, and this is why, or one of the reasons, okay. uh, then we have gluteomorphin and proteinorphin. So these are specific for the opioid receptors, um, that we have. And so gluten is addictive, absolutely hundred percent addictive. And if someone is reacting, if someone has elevated proteinorphin or gluteomorphin, that tells me that gluten interacts with their opioid receptors, which means that it's really hard for them to come off gluten. And when they do truly eliminate gluten, they're going to feel like crap for the, for the first few weeks because they're going to be in withdrawal. Their body is going, I need my drug. Right. Mm -hmm. And it takes a while for those opioid receptors who who are used to getting flooded, right, to recede and start to calm down. Um, this is another reason why those same people, uh, once they've been working with us for a while, that they get their lives back and they're feeling great. And then they're like, oh, it's my birthday. I'm going to have that gluten cake because I deserve it. And then they have a big piece of cake. And now it just hits them like a ton of bricks and they, they totally OD. They just like hit a wall. They can't think. They feel horrible. They feel worse than they ever felt before when they eat gluten. And I get those calls and those, you know, five alarm messages. Whitney, oh my God, I just had a couple of bites and oh my God. It's like, yeah, because you don't have those opioid receptors used to getting flooded anymore. Now you just OD'd, right? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And for the um the practitioners listening out there, you know, your the situation that you just brought up is actually fairly common. Oh yeah. Uh, I wouldn't wish it on a client client. I wouldn't recommend it. But there is and I could be wrong, maybe I'm just lucky with my experiences here. But I find that when this happens, if it's going to happen anyway, it's almost almost a good thing because yes. once I have had clients experience this, they're feeling great, they're kicking ass, and then they do it one time and they feel that way. That is usually the last time I ever get a call or text saying, That's hey, right. I intentionally cheated because it's not worth it. It's not worth the stupid cake. Go to the certified gluten-free right. bakery made by the celiac owner and buy the cake there. Like this isn't even like hard to replace. You can get a delicious cake that's gluten free. Like it's not like you can never. There's certain foods like dairy is actually a little harder to really truly mimic in today's world.
world at the time of recording this, there is nothing that I miss about gluten, wheat, whatever, because I can replace it and the food tastes phenomenal and it's better ingredients in general. Yes. So you, you don't have to be missing out on anything. Yes, price is more. Um, that's one thing to consider. I don't want to underestimate that. But I mean, what's the price of your health? What's the yeah. price of not being able to work properly? What's the price of getting angry at your family members because you're constantly in a pissed off mood? I mean, that's... I'll spend the extra few bucks on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the way I, I like to think about it too is that, you know, when when you spend all this time doing this work and cleaning up, um, well, our bodies are very adaptive, right? They're, get, they're going to adapt to anything if they can so that we can continue to get up in the morning and go through our day and survive. And that includes all the crappy things we do, right? So if we're smoking cigarettes and drinking alcohol and we're sitting in a chair all day and we're, our body's going to do everything it can to adapt and keep us safe. Um, and that means increasing our tolerance for certain symptoms, right? And then suddenly 10 years down the road, we think we feel normal, even though we've got all these symptoms, but now we've normalized to them, right? So then they work with someone like you and me and they feel better and they're like, oh my God, I haven't felt this way in, you know, five, 10 years. Then they go out and have that crazy hurrah experience and their body's like, wait, wait, I can't adapt to that so fast. That took me years to adapt to. Are you kidding me? Right. And so it's, it puts an incredible amount of stress on the system, but that stress is a reflection of how healthy and in balance your body is that it's able to go, no, you don't understand. This is really bad. This isn't good for me. And I'm going to tell you that. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, I swear to God, time flies when you and I, I know, do. right. Every time you and I talk, it always flies. Um, I want to make sure we get through some of yeah. the other stuff real so quick. If, if that's gluten okay, is so. really easy. It's just another piece of the gluten puzzle. Um, this is a gluten pepti gluten peptides, and this person is reactive to one of them. The glutenin tends to correlate with skin issues and also respiratory issues. Okay. And we see one, for those listening on audio, there was one uh, of these was kind of high for this person. Yeah. And it looks like, what is the last page here? Nice. This is very, uh, this is wheat super panel. important because people think, okay, I'm gluten sensitive, but I can still have wheatgrass, you know, like athletic greens, everybody's taking them. They got wheatgrass in them. Well, you can't take the wheat out of wheatgrass. You can extract the gluten to less than 10 parts per million to make it certifiable gluten-free, but you can't take the wheat out of it. And when we do the labs, 99% of people who are sensitive to the gluten puzzle pieces are sensitive to the non-gluten puzzle pieces. Hmm. So you aren't just gluten sensitive, you are wheat sensitive and you are gluten sensitive. And then this person is wheat lectin sensitive. There are three very different things, right? They just come from yeah. the same big puzzle of wheat. So, so yeah, this person, it, it isn't safe for them to do their athletic grains, right? They got to switch. They got to get off that stuff. Um, interestingly too, the, uh, this client was having difficulty losing weight the amylase protease inhibitors that she's reactive to, that tends to correlate with stubborn weight issues. So if you get off the wheat and you stop that exposure, your body has an easier time releasing that weight. Um, but yeah, this is very simple. It just says, hey, you're wheat sensitive and gluten sensitive. Gotcha.
I, I'm going to stop sharing for those on video. This is on purpose. And I'm going back to my screen with Whitney yeah. here as we kind of um, wrap this up. Two things. One, before I have a conclusion, nary question. I don't know if that's a yeah. word, but I want to know where people can find you because if they're listening to this and are even half as impressed as I am, um, I'd be wondering like, okay, how can I work with this person to actually do things like this and the other work that we do? So where can they find you? Sure. They can find me at Whitney Morgan Nutrition. That's my website. That's my Instagram and Facebook and my LinkedIn, Whitney Morgan Nutrition. And Excellent. We'll have that in the show notes. Oh, sorry. Great. And I run, I run Zoomers on every single client um, and not just the wheat Zoomer. I do like corn and dairy and, and you know, we look at other um, mob bosses of the food world. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. And if you guys like the wheat Zoomer, you just wait till she breaks out her other Zoomers. You're going to love that. So <laughs> right. um, we'll have that in the show notes for you guys. One thing, if you don't mind, I, I want to finish up with is because even myself, I mean, I'm aware of this, been doing yeah. this for a while. And then I hear something because I, I know I'm at least my elementary understanding of this at this point is just a basic wheat sensitivity. That's all I've ever really tested for. So I stay away from it. I tried to for the last six, seven years. I have never intentionally consumed it during that time. And then I hear someone like you. And when you ran the Zoomer, and I'm thinking about how far you were into your journey when you would have ran a Zoomer. And I know that you were on top of this stuff by then. And still something got lit up. So I I admit, um, and and it's a transient feeling, but it's kind of like, damn, like you almost wonder, like how hard really is this? So when we're looking at all these tests and you're doing this with your clients, I mean, what is, what's the practical solution to this? Cause you're one of the sure. most disciplined and aware people I know in this literally. And then it was still happening to you. So like, how did, how did you get that under control? What was it? Yeah. It's kind of like peeling back the layers of the onion. So at the time that I did my wheat zoomer, um, yeah, I had been living in a gluten-free house for five years. Right. And I only dined out at three restaurants three different restaurants, you know, those are the ones I determined were safe. Um, and when I got my results back, I was like, Oh my God. Oh no. You know? So I had to take a deep dive into my personal care products and kind of go through everything. Start from scratch is what I says. Like, I'm just going to look at everything, pull out everything in my pantry and my medicine cabinet and my supplements and blah, 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 blah. So I found a couple of things, right. That could be potentially suspicious and contaminated. So got rid of those. Uh, I found several personal care products um, that were problematic that I had just let sneak in. And I just had gotten kind of lazy about that, I guess. But um, it's just about, you know, trying to perfect things. And then um, what I decided to do is to use the wheat zoomer as kind of a test. So in other words, um, my husband and I would go out to dinner once a week at most. You know, it was always someplace that I thought was safe. Okay, well, then it could have been the restaurant too, right? Maybe my house was fine. So the way to test that is, okay, I am not going to eat out for the next six months. And then I'm going to run another Zoomer and I'm going to see, right? Did I, am I safe? Is my house safe? So for my clients, particularly those with celiac disease, but anyone with autoimmune disease and non-celiac gluten sensitivity, I say, you know, run a wheat zoomer once a year. If you're feeling great and your test results are normal, run it once a year, just like you would your CBC and your CMP at your doctor. Mm -hmm. Um, If you get positive results, then you got to run it twice a year because now you have to 
go back to the drawing board, try and figure it out. And you have to run the test again in six months, give your antibodies time to clear. And it's just this process of investigation. But and that can be frustrating. I hear what you're saying. It's like, oh, oh my God. Right. I mean, is it ever am I ever going to hit that safe spot? Well, what I usually say is, you know, you may never get a negative wheat tumor. That's okay, right? What we want to do is stay on top of it. We want to make sure that everything else is improving. We want to make sure that you're not having other antibody increases to other tissues. We want, you know, if if you're feeling great and everything is great and you get one or two reactions on your IgG, it's like, okay, yeah, you probably got exposed randomly when you went out for lunch with your friend and that's probably never going to repeat itself. Does that really matter in the big scheme of things? No, because 99% of the time you're doing everything you need to do to keep safe, right? So we always have to remember, correlate back to the client, right? Mm -hmm. I have four autoimmune diseases. They're all in remission. So, you know, if I see a wheat zoomer with one or two elevated antibodies, like I think I'm doing a pretty good job. Yeah. Right. Now, if I had elevated thyroid antibodies and my celiac panel was showing elevation, that would be a different story. Okay. I really appreciate that because I know, again, and rightfully so, you take this to a pretty high level and it's like, all right, we're going to do this right. I've actually... I don't know if I've ever heard you give anything on this, so I, I but I've never talked about the Zoomers either. I love hearing that from Whitney Morgan. That's like, all right, if these specific things are up and you're running it once a year and you feel okay, okay, probably not the worst in the world, but here's where I would draw the line. Um, that's actually very helpful for me. I'm yeah. still going to run it because I'm, yeah. I, I'm really wanting to know. I, I have this feeling in the back of my head, like maybe the deli I go to. What sucks too, it's because even if it's great 99% of the time, I mean, it's a deli. They're making new Mm -hmm. things and it's not like they're a dedicated gluten facility or gluten-free facility. So there's always a a chance regardless of the owner being super aware of this. And one thing I'll leave people on too, just from an inspiring standpoint, um, there's great books out there. A lot of business ones. I'm super into that where it talks about with every problem, there comes with it a seed of equal and greater even potentially yeah. opportunity. And so here's your opportunity right here. I'm thinking about this myself. There are a lot of people like Whitney and myself. It is growing rapidly. There is a huge, huge demand for this. Maybe a little premature to be like investing your life savings into it. But over the next two, three, four, five years, because this is, again, the information spreading so rapidly. FDN's growing. Many places mm-hmm. are growing. There are going to be people that want to go out to eat and are not so thrilled about it because they're worried about things like this. So right. if you can create a restaurant or a business or snacks that you can guarantee to the people, hey, no, this place, I can't tell you everywhere else, but this place is good. We never allow anything to touch this here. Um, I think that's, that's right. a business opportunity. We have... um. Uh, it's like the second most popular gluten baker or gluten-free bakery in the greater Philadelphia area, thankfully only 10 minutes away from me. They will hire anyone, but you are not even allowed yeah. to bring in lunch from outside of that facility into their place. You cannot eat lunch from the local stores in there. If you want to eat, it has to be stuff from the bakery or you leave and then you can come back. And they're, the, the owner has celiac. They get it. But that's yes. rare. That's rare that those people get it. That's rare. That's but they're rare. popular because of it, because there are people out there who get it. So again, don't go through your all your whole life savings on a restaurant like this, but um, it could be a side thing uh, for sure. Like I'm thinking about it myself. So who knows? Oh yeah, yeah. We should talk because yeah. I've got a question. Yeah, I was about ideas. to say, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Whitney and Ev's bakery's coming soon at a, a nice restaurant. So uh um yeah, th- thank you so much yeah. for your time today. And uh 
I, I just appreciate you coming on. This is a new one for me. It's exciting me because I want to get on this and run it. And I feel like every time you share your information, it, it's pretty obvious the passion that you have for this. So I hope everyone else enjoyed this as much as I did. Um, thanks for hopping on with me. Oh, thanks for having me. This is always so much fun for me to nerd out yeah. with the Wheat Zoomer. So <laughs> I appreciate the opportunity. 